the equality was equality achieved if in making one small group feel that they have access to the space they want but in doing so you have put women at risk how can that be justice how can that be compassionate Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at current events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created by Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. Whether you're listening on your favorite podcast app or watching this episode on YouTube, would you take just a minute to go and give us a rating and a review? Ratings and reviews really do add up, and they help new listeners to find the show. Thank you so much. And lastly, don't forget to check out our show notes, which are always full of resources like articles or other podcasts and books. You'll find a link to my bookstore created in partnership with 10 of those, where you'll see the books recommended on today's episode. My 10 of those store always has discount prices and $1 shipping. Welcome to All Things, everybody. I am so thankful that you have joined me this week. I am thrilled to be sharing a voice and a face with you. This is Dr. Christina Crenshaw, and she is a professor, a researcher, a writer, and speaker. Now, I have to say I came across Christina maybe a year or two ago online. She has a really encouraging and challenging online platform, especially in social media spaces where she just engages stories and her readers and her followers and speaks to biblical justice and truth for our cultural moment. And that has been so encouraging to me. So Christina, thank you for coming on to All Things and sharing your voice with my listeners. Well, thank you, Jen, for having me. I'm honored. So I know that you like to write and speak about biblically rooted justice, integrating faith and work. You have a long history in human trafficking prevention. Um, basically, it seems like your your desire is to just speak biblical worldview into spaces and spheres that God allows you for the common good, for God's glory and the good of others. Um, where do you serve right now? What does your life look like right now? And fill in some of those gaps so that people know a little bit more about who you are. Yeah, well, I would say I'll start with personally. Personally, I'm a mom. I'm a wife of it'll be 20 years this summer. Um, Yay. Married. I know. I like to tell people we got married really, really, really young, but the truth <laughs> is I'm just old now. Um, <laughs> I have uh, two boys. They are in third and fifth grade. And so it's a lot of sports and carting kids around and just a lot of um, mom kind of stuff that I'm loving. I'm really relishing this season. Um, but professionally, I also work as an associate at Dallas Seminary, and I'm a fellow at Southwestern Seminary. And so I am up going from Waco, Texas to Dallas, up going to Fort Worth quite a bit um, for different different events and, and different um things that those seminaries are hosting by way of of working for them. So I do a lot of podcasting and webinar writing for those two spaces and then just other conferences and speaking engagements um, and writing. Yeah. My day looks like. Mostly. Yeah, that's good. I will be obviously linking um, your website and your social media handles in our show notes. But I do want to just encourage listeners right now, definitely follow Christina, because uh, one thing I love is just I'm scrolling Instagram thinking, you know, thinking about what's going on today, what I'm going to cook for dinner or whatever, and then I'll come upon Christina's stories. And they're just so thought provoking. Um, and I kind of honestly admire that you can engage things on a daily basis at the pace that you do. Um, I'm always like, dang, how does she do that? So thank you for stewarding your voice and just consistently, you know, talking about headlines, talking about culture and pointing us back to what's true. It's so helpful. 
Thank you, Jen. I mean, to answer that question, because sometimes I wonder that too. I have a few friends I follow online and I'm like, how do you have so much time? Um, I would say that I do a lot in like the carpool line when I'm waiting mm -hmm. or just, you know, like I try to just find the, the margins of life. Um, I also set my timer. This is something I've had to do to be really healthy for just an hour of social mm. media a day. And when it cuts off me, obviously you can override, but I try really hard not to just for accountability. And it's it helped me stay healthy so that I know that my offline life is more robust than my online. So just want to encourage mm -hmm. listeners that. I don't want to ever encourage anyone to have more social media usage. So yes, no, that is so good. I love that you're striving, but within healthy boundaries. I think that's so key. And also the reason I know that you can speak to these things is because you've been thinking about them, researching them, writing about them, you know, at a high academic level for over a decade. So it's not like you're just like, well, let me give you my hot take on the latest cultural moment. You've actually been engaging it already for so long. So obviously that's wonderful. And that's why I'm glad you're here on all things. So, um, okay, let's start with this. I know that you have been speaking out with a goal of protecting women for decades. Kind of that, I think that's kind of your foundation in a lot of this work is wanting to see and protect women. So tell us about that, how you got started in that, some of your history with um, anti-trafficking work and things like that. Yeah, well, let me tell you a little bit about my biography from, you know, Earning my doctorate is probably about where that conversation would start. I went out to California. I was an assistant professor out at California Baptist University. And, you know, higher ed really encourages professors to have a research agenda. It, it sort of justifies your existence in higher ed. And I just sort of looked at the Lord, you know, prayed, looked at my life and said, okay, well, I want to make sure that I am using my voice and stewarding my sphere of influence in a way that really is working for the common good and that's going to bring God glory. And I had just finished this dissertation. We talked a little bit about this before the show began. Uh, my dissertation was on how does the Christian worldview equip us to become agents of change? And so essentially asking this question exactly 10 years ago is when I finished and published that, you know, in what way does biblical justice compel us to go out into the world and engage culture and to, to do good things? I ended up... Um, forming a partnership, a relationship with the A21 campaign and Christine Kane, um, just through a series of like-minded relationships and, and, and um, just fellow, fellow people in the same circle. And I worked for A21, helping them develop this curriculum for high school students, Bodies Are Not Commodities. And mm -hmm. I did that, you know, simultaneously while working at a university and kind of using this as my, my research agenda. And human trafficking is just one of those social problems that once you know, you can't unknow and you mm -hmm. feel compelled to jump in. So I would say that was the start um, a little, about 10 years ago, the start of really doing anti-trafficking work and specifically wanting to know, okay, how do we reach high school kids? Because yeah. I taught um, in the School of Education at Cal Baptist in the English department. So how do I use these worlds to reach high school kids through curriculum to educate them about yeah. modern day slavery, essentially? Mm -hmm. And from there, I ended up moving back to Waco, Texas, my, my doctorate's from Baylor, so 
my husband and I joke, this is our second tour of duty in Waco, Texas. <laughs> we moved back for his job primarily, but, but was um, fortuitous enough to land a position at Baylor teaching as a full-time lecturer. Um, so teaching, you know, as a, as a professor, but didn't really have to do research in that role, but wanted to. So took this curriculum back to Baylor. We ended up doing a big study, a, a two-year study published in several different journals, academic journals, went um, to different academic conferences. And so the Lord really allowed me to use that as a voice for, hey, what does it look like to um, protect women and to protect children? Because, you know, human trafficking doesn't just affect women, uh, just it disproportionately does, but it affects yeah. children, labor trafficking affects males. Um, yeah. But that was the beginning of this journey of what does it look like to speak up for the vulnerable, for the marginalized, for the hurting, uh, because we believe, you know, as believers that Jesus is the answer and that he is the redemptive, transformative power that culture is looking for, and they just don't know it. So mm -hmm. I wanted to take my piece of the gospel and to integrate it into what I was doing and speaking up for the least of these was just a natural fit and a good research agenda, it turned out. So, Wow. Okay. So all of this sort of began with anti-trafficking work. I love what you have said about the curriculum. That is amazing. And I think hits the nail on the head in terms of we want to be training our youth. And that is, that is so good. So how did your, your work evolve from anti-trafficking? Kind of walk us through how maybe your vision for biblical justice and for protecting women or protecting the least of these how that grew from a focus on just anti-trafficking to what I have observed from you online. And that is an, a, a desire to protect. I mean, obviously everybody, but over the last few years, it feels like there has, I think because culture has sort of forced your hand, been a particular interest in protecting women and girls. So what's been going on culturally that brought that shift about? Yeah, well, I started to notice, like I think most of us did, a sharp turn in 2020. We were not well. None of us yeah. were well in lockdown. And I think we weren't well to begin with, but there was a spotlight put mm. on our unhealth that happened in 2020. And you know, all of the studies coming out of the CDC showed that kids were not doing well in lockdown. Yeah. You know, mm. churches are on the decline. Barna put out a study in 2021 that said 38% of pastors either left or considered leaving after 2020 because it was it took such a toll on churches and, and church leadership and i know that you know being married to a pastor how difficult that season was and so i think and it makes me teary i too i started to just look to my left and to my right and i saw everywhere and you know i mean that sort of you know ubiquitously but but even like politically i'm looking to the left to the right and i'm watching people deconstruct their faith i'm watching people leave people that i thought were more rooted in their faith hmm. i'm watching people make decisions out of emotion instead of reason and logic. And meanwhile, um, I think this is actually a Lifeway study, not Barna, but Lifeway then released a study that said that less than 48% of us can even define what a Christian worldview is. Or that when people, when they would survey people and they would ask um, sort of fundamental worldview questions, we, people were not able to answer different worldview questions. So for example, Lifeway asked questions like, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven or, or just a way to heaven? 
And less than 48% said, yes, Jesus is the only way to heaven. And they mm-hmm. asked questions about, you know, like, you know, original sin. Like, do you believe that we are born into sin and in need of a savior? And again, less than half of the survey of wow. evangelical Christians. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I expect the world to give some wonky answers. But <laughs> in the church, we yeah. aren't able to fully um, define our faith and then to integrate it. And so I think it was actually from a place of truly being grieved. You know, I was um, at an event at the Museum of the Bible this past weekend and spoke on a panel on this. And I can't get through without crying because I'm not Mm. not sad for me. I'm fine. My kids are fine. I'm so sad for the church, Big C Church, Mm. and so sad for culture. Because, you know, we we know that this is the enemy. It's the enemy Mm -hmm. coming to, to lie, to kill, steal, and destroy because he can't create, so he just yeah. destroys. And it, it grieves me. So um, in answer to the question, I think that it was just about 2020 when I started to say, hey, this biblical worldview, this narrative of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, created in his image, we mm-hmm. live in a fallen world, but good news, Jesus comes to redeem and he can restore all yes. of the enemy and the locusts have stolen from your life. I realized we weren't walking out in that. Um, And so that there was a larger place to speak into than just human trafficking. And so I sort of um, stumbled into that by default, watching 2020. And then with an event that I went through in 2021, the Lord just started calling me to speak more into those spaces. Yeah. What I know is that you already had a very well-established doctrine of the Imago Dei, that every human life has value and dignity. And that came from your research and the time that you spent in anti-trafficking work, where you realized that, you know, we all have the same worth and value and dignity, that the Lord has called us to something. Um, and so I can see why it, it felt personally just so devastating to you to see the church sort of ripping apart um, and us treating each other without dignity and without value and without worth. Um, and of course, in culture, that has increasingly happened as well. Um, the culture around us is doing that as well. Um, Christina, I want to move toward what I would really love to hear from you about today. And that is just specifically issues of gender as it relates to women and girls and protecting women and girls in spaces that have been traditionally intended for women and girls. This is something that I think about a lot. I know you think about a lot, um, but it's so controversial. Somehow even in the church, it is so controversial. Um, You know, let me just start by giving an example. This weekend, just yesterday, we're recording on a Monday. So just yesterday on Sunday um, in church, a good friend of mine, her daughter goes to public high school here in Colorado. And she was sharing with me how frustrated she is because boy students at the school who biological males who identify as biological males are using the girl's bathroom and they're hanging out in there and hiding in there. Um, just being goofy in there, but you know, her daughter went in to use the bathroom and there was a boy hiding in the stall and she just felt so frustrated. She'd gone to the superintendent. She's gone to the school board. She's written her representatives and the party line is we, we are not asking questions. We don't ask about gender. We don't ask about identity. Anybody can use any bathroom anytime. Um, so I kind of want to get there in our conversation because this is pressing on yeah. me, on you, on people around us. So 
Can you start us off with giving us just a, a bit of a history of women's rights? Um, what I feel like we got here so quickly. I don't know how we got here so quickly, but kind of lay the, 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 the foundation for this conversation for us, if you would. Yeah. Oh man, that is okay. So to kind of give, let me give like a macro overview. I would say most people would point to just where did cultural go awry to different critical theories that were developed in the 1940s. So 1930s, 1940s, there was um, a Franklin School of Thought over in Germany. And it really was, and and I want to be very charitable and and to represent this as fairly as possible. But I, I think that most people would gather around this being a fair representation. But the Frankfurt School of Thought was a hotbed for different critical theories that were in the vein of socialism and Marxism. And the entire school was predicated on the idea that we're going to question authority and we're going to deconstruct it. In fact, deconstruction um, was first used in terms of sociological power in different literary formats within the school of thought. That infiltrated academia, 1940s, 50s. We see it very prevalent in the 60s, 70s, 80s. But about since the 1980s, it's creeped. There's been a thought creep into larger culture. Unwittingly, people have adopted Mm. this into K through 12 or even into their churches and into their private lives. Most people are familiar with critical race theory. That's the one we hear about the most. And I I do want to say to be charitable, I can find some things within CRT where I'm like, hey, that's actually very biblical principle. And it just needs to be you know, redeemed under that language, you know, it just sort of needs to be taken back for, for God's glory. Um, and then there are some things that are deeply concerning that might, that just needs to be rejected. So critical yeah. theories, feminism is a form of critical theory. And we have seen waves of feminism. There's been at least four waves um, really since the late 1800s. And I find a lot of solidarity actually with first and second wave feminists. You know, the first wave was fighting for just the right to vote, the right to own property if their husbands passed away, the right to parental rights if, if they're, you know, again, their husband passed away or, or there was, you know, a divorce. And we saw that up until about the 1920s when women did earn the right to vote. Then we started to see a shift to kind of more of a sexual revolution. And it's a little harder to find common ground there for me, but I do find a lot of feminists who were calling for, hey, we need childcare if we're going to work, or we need fair representation in the workplace, or we need equal opportunity in order to even go to college, right? Mm -hmm. And so then we see third wave, and third wave is really more about um, kind of like closing the work gap. But that is also about the time when it becomes very murky with gender, third wave and particularly fourth wave in the 1990s, where we're questioning even what is a woman. So feminism went from fighting for women's rights to here we are after about the 1990s asking, well, what even is a woman? You know, if a male identifies as a woman, can he then be a she and also be a feminist? And it has divided. There are some, you know, old second wave feminists, older, I should say that in reverence, um, who are still holding that line with like, hey, we have fought really hard for a seat at the table. T- 
Title IX, 1972, we fought really hard to make sure that women had equal opportunity for educational advancement or safety with sports or even um, equitable places with sports. Because before 1972, and really even today, you can find this in, in some places, smaller schools, where there's really not equal, you know, um, opportunity for women's sports, like perhaps they don't have the same kind of gym or the same kind of weight equipment, or they don't get the same kind of marketing budget, those sorts of things that we've come to take for granted in our lifetime and, and you know, coming of age. But for our mothers, that was not the norm. Mm -hmm. You know, my mom joined the army. Um, it's kind of a different story for a different day. But I think that was 1975 or 76. And she was one of the first women um, in her class to, to join the army. And now I just feel like I know so many women who are have served in the military. And mm -hmm. so I think I'm thankful in so many ways for the feminists who've come before, but I get sad. I am grieved when I think about the ways it has been hijacked and the waters have been muddied between what is biology and then what is, um, you know, people are calling like a gender social construct. Mm -hmm. And I will say that gender is a bit more of a social construct than our sex and our biology, but it's so concentric concentrically related that um, it feels like a silly conversation to try to even separate yeah. the two out. Yeah. I have heard people do a great job making the distinctions because gender typically is assigned to performative mm -hmm. behaviors, but sex is always related to biology. Um, mm -hmm. But now it's become controversial to stand on anything biblical mm -hmm. and even biological. Mm -hmm. And that is that has been a cultural, um, yeah, just sort of a cultural quandary in the last 20, 30 years, slowly, mm -hmm. but it feels overnight, I think, because of that, that explosion of social media. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. That um, background and that history that you've just given us is really, really helpful. Um, and I echo what you say. I mean, I feel like I was born in 1978. So Title IX came just before I right. was born. And I feel like even when I was playing sports in elementary school and high school, there definitely still was some inequity, you know, what the guys got versus what the girls got. And, and we were thrilled as girls to get this, the protected spaces that we had, the, to get the funding that we had, the scholarships that were available. And all of those have only been available to us for a couple generations. And it feels so incredibly regressive to me for so-called feminists who you think are fighting for spaces for women than to just willingly, um, not even willingly, but enthusiastically, um, you know, aggressively then want to hand those spaces that were hard earned over to anybody who identifies as a female. The movement feels really regressive and backwards moving to me. And I cannot wrap my head around why we are so willing to give up ground that took so long to gain? Well, I'll try to answer that. I don't know that I have a definitive answer, but I've spent a lot of time having to think about this. And I will say in fairness to kind of the second wave feminists who were around in 1972 and who were advocating for, you know, equal opportunity in the workplace, who were advocating for equal opportunity in higher ed, um, those would probably be considered second, maybe some third wave feminists, they have raised concern and they have raised their voices, but it is 
disheartening to see how quickly those voices mm-hmm. are shut down. Yeah. For example, yeah. um, you know, I went through a, a social media fire in 2021, and I was watching the women's dean of Harvard of gender studies get fired too for trying mm. to assert that there is a biological difference and that mm. she will placate to higher ed that biological males are not females. And she is the Dean of gender studies or, you know, whatever department she was in and she's fired from Harvard. And so I think that the, the, the loud rage mob, I I'm seeing a bit of a, a turn and a shift. I think we reached the, the peak of our frenzy in 2021. That's just sort of my theory. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just a roaring fire waiting to come back. But I think that we have started, we, we've realized we can't keep canceling everybody. And so I, I think, I hope that there is more nuance and more conversation happening now. But I think to answer your question, it has felt like this rage mob silencing anyone who won't wholesale accept this cultural narrative. And I think what motivates the rage mob is that they think they're doing it to be compassionate and they Mm. think they're doing it for justice. And we realize, Mm. I mean, most of us who are reasonable about this realize it's deeply incompassionate to take safe, protected spaces away from women. If giving so-called equality to one group means really um, making equality precarious for another group, then then is that equitable? Is that really equality? Was equality achieved if in making one small group feel that they have access to the space they want, but in doing so, you have put women at risk? How can that be justice? How can that be compassionate? So I do think I'm starting to see enough people speak up. I was, I guess, one of the first at the helm of this. But as we see biological males win women of woman of the year time and time again for different sports and different achievements, I think enough women are speaking up and saying, hey, this seems really unfair, illogical, unfair, and even in some circumstances, dangerous. Um, you know, people want to make the argument that, you know, well, we're really just um, targeting and marginalizing transgender groups, that transgender groups just want a biological male who identifies as a female wants access to female spaces and that it, it, it's harmless. But we know from research that that's not true. Even if we could, because, you know, I've been willing to suspend my disbelief, even if every transgender male who identifies as a female is not a threat to female sexual assault, even if that were true, that doesn't help control for the males who are unsafe and who will abuse that space mm-hmm. to sexually assault women, right? And so, yeah. and, and again, you know, you use the example from um, someone local who is concerned about having a school. What is to say that a predator wouldn't allow himself to come into that space? We don't have mm-hmm. any kind of a litmus for this and so it ends up opening the door to all kinds of predatory exploitation of yeah. um, females of all ages. Yeah. yeah, that is a helpful way to frame it. So I guess you know sort of to bring it home to a really specific example for for my friend and her daughter who's going to the girls bathroom and boys are in there, those boys might just be silly and harmless, right? They're we talked about it at dinner last night and my husband was like, well, men's bathrooms are gross. So they're, they probably just, you know, want to go to the nice bathroom. And so that's harmless. Any better. I mean, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. 
<laughs> right? I don't know either because I stick with the girls' bathrooms. But <laughs> the point being, like these might be harmless, silly, you know, boys. But if the school doesn't have a protocol of preventing then somebody else from going into this bathroom, then then the girls are indeed at risk. And so it's right. really, really tricky. There have been cases, you know, I um, that, that your listeners can look up, you know, because that's another thing. I think data should inform a lot of our decisions, particularly when it comes to policy, um, not necessarily theology, but, but with policy, we do want our policy to be data-driven. And there have been examples. Uh, Abigail Schreier is a great journalist to look up if your listeners want to do some more of a deep dive, but she's written extensively. She started first writing on the transgender wave in England. England's always just 10 to 20 years ahead of us and sort of cultural, um, you know, the way that we engage culturally. But she saw this um, move of girls who were transitioning and who were having hysterectomies and were, were having top surgery. And then she started to see the regret that came after. In fact, there are now lawsuits against in the state of England medicine because they allowed it at such a young age. And these girls were not ready to give that kind of consent. And then Abigail has since moved Abigail Schreier into researching well, what is happening in, say, California when, or in, in New York when biological males say that they identify as female and they're put into female prisons? Mm-hmm. And we are seeing an increase. In fact, it, it's kind of comical, but not really. But there's been an increase on female-on-female sexual assault because mm-hmm. what's really happening is that these biological males are assaulting women mm-hmm. in prison. So that's one person they can look up and, and mm-hmm. um, you know, even more more tangibly, just two years ago in Loudoun County, there was a biological male who said that he was female, was using female restroom, sexually assaulted a girl in the female restroom. Loudoun County in Virginia tried to keep it hush, moved the student to another school, and he did it a second time. Right. So again, even if we could get some sort of a medical clearance that those who struggle with a transgender identity are safe and they're harmless and they will not cause any harm to girls. That doesn't address mm. questions like, well, what about predatory behavior from people who aren't safe? It doesn't address questions like, what about the trauma that inflicts on young girls who have to see biological parts that, you know, maybe they weren't ready for, or maybe they have a history of abuse and they need that safe space. Right. So I I do find the entire situation just so fundamentally upsetting and backwards and illogical. Mm. I can understand my culture wouldn't get on board with biblical values. Um, That makes sense to me. But when it's biological and we're questioning biology, that is that is a more challenging um, thing to wrap my head around as well, Jen. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely echo your sentiment there. Do you think that we're headed the way of England? Do you think in 10 years we're going to be seeing these lawsuits against um, gender um, affirming clinics and practitioners? I hope so. I do. Yeah. I, I mm-hmm. hope so. Um, I'd like to say that I hope that we would um, learn from their mistakes and not mm-hmm. repeat them. But history has shown time and again, we we really don't. I mean, in England's defense, they were one of the first countries to, to work towards an abolitionist movement, you yeah. know, William Wilberforce. So they yeah. really are 
it, it is just so curious to me why at a national level, we're not looking more towards what our, our friends in the UK have done, you know, mm-hmm. our Western movements, because it does everything from even deconstructing faith. It just moves West towards America after it starts yeah. in the UK. Yeah, it really does. So- I hope so, Jen. I hope that if not, you know, the litigious aspect, I hope that we are at a place where we can pause and say, okay, this has not worked well in Canada. This has not worked well in the UK. People Mm -hmm. regret, and it's not solving the mental health crisis that they claim that it was going to solve. Because it was part of, again, from that place of compassion, we would say, well, let's get you the help you need and the gender affirming care. But studies are starting to show that it actually makes it worse, that kids actually feel worse about themselves after they've transitioned. So... Yes, you are absolutely right. Can you talk to the listener who's not on the front lines of academia or journalism, but the the mom, the coach, the teacher, um, the just you know the everyday person who's listening, who is really uncomfortable with where things are headed, and they want to speak up or they want to do something? You know, what can you do as a citizen um, in in terms of your family or your neighborhood or your community? What can be done? Yeah. I would say that the first place of advice I give, which may even seem like antithetical to to what um, one would expect, but it's that we don't want to go looking for the fight, right? Mm. Like I don't think that it is our job as Christians to go looking for the fight, but I think one could also argue that it's at our doorstep, right? Like your Mm. friend with her daughters in school. She didn't ask for that. Like that really is in her local school. And that does deeply concern her life. And so I think that would be a great example of, hey, you go to the principal, you make your case, you go to the superintendent, you make your voice heard, you make your case known. I think with as much charity and grace, with clarity and compassion, you speak up. And so yeah. it's, it's a heart posture of like, we're not looking to just pick up arguments, but when the argument has come to your door, I think we also don't shirk away because mm-hmm. that is not good for our kids. It's not good for our culture. And we need brave voices that are going to speak up. And so I'm, I'm always so thankful when I see parents go before school boards and you see these yeah. clips online and they're like, Hey, I found a really disturbing book in our library. Can you explain to me why in third grade, my kid has access to reading about sexual activities? Because most reasonable people would say that's, it's really not appropriate. And so I'm right. thankful for voices that do speak up. The other thing I would say is to remember that the fight is not against flesh and blood, that it is Mm. really, truly against the enemy. We lose sight of that, even within the church. You know, we've talked briefly before recording how I get so sad when I see the church slandering itself. We're the bride of Christ and we're cutting ourselves. Like, I just Mm. don't even understand the heart and the philosophy behind that. Um, But whether it's in the church or it's in culture, The person is not the enemy. It is the lie that they're believing. It's the lie that they're perpetuating. And that lie was given from the enemy because he is so deceptive and so cunning. And again, he comes to kill, steal, and destroy, right? And so when we keep that in mind that we are fighting not against 
our brother and sister, not against even our so-called enemy, but we are actually fighting the enemy, Mm -hmm. right? And it sort of changes the entire purpose. Like I am not going to let the enemy gain this ground. I am not going to let him win. Then it sort of, it diffuses for me the the person who's just being ugly online or being rude. And I remember this person is just really deceived. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't places where I'm not rightly seeing either. And that that compels me to get into the word and to really stay in community. And I want that accountability because I am just as prone to wander too, right? But when we look at people who, who are lost or they're broken and they're saying mm-hmm. things, we remember, okay, they are be- they're deceived by the enemy. And when, mm-hmm. you, when your fight is ultimately against the power of darkness and not that person who's sitting next to you in the room, it changes the way you engage it. Because again, you are then engaging the common good for God's glory, not just to shut that other person down. Oh, that is so good. I appreciate that. I I feel exhorted and challenged by that as well. Don't go looking for the fight and remember who the fight is against and to engage prayer and to ask the Lord for his help. And I I love that it sort of depersonalizes it because I think sometimes that's sort of what prevents us from engaging is that scary personal aspect. But if we remember um, that the Lord is with us and there is darkness that he's asked us to push back, um, that's so important. Could you leave us with just a of a final note of hope, Christina, I mean, you've been engaged in hard spaces. You have been treated badly online. You have endured a canceling firestorm of your own. Why keep going? Tell us why we should have hope and why we should keep going. Yeah. I want to tell your listeners, because I think that this will encourage them that in my nature, in my flesh, so to speak, when I was being publicly slandered and libeled. And I mean, this was Fox and Friends news. I was on Fox and Friends, you know, Ali Beth Stuckey, um, you know, Christianity Today and World Magazine. I mean, all the different Christian outlets are picking it up. I wanted to just hide. In fact, it makes yeah. me kind of eyed. Um, you know, particularly when some people threaten my own kids. And in light of what just happened in Nashville, I think the gravity of that weighs on me even more that people mm-hmm. would call my kids school and threaten or that they would reach out and say, we know where your kids go to school. We're not afraid to hurt them. And those felt like empty threats at the time, but I realized now that they're not, and it's not, it's not okay. But I want to encourage your listeners that as much pushback and slander as I got for just simply saying biological males do not belong in female spaces, it's unsafe and unfair, I had even more support from the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so if something like this ever happens to you, know that there's a body of believers who want to stand with you. And more than likely, it's not going to happen to your listeners. But I would encourage them when you see that happening to someone else to stand and to lend your voice, because that made all the difference for me. When people said like, hey, this is spiritual warfare, and I am behind you lifting up your hands to fight the enemy. Let's go. That Mm -hmm. changed the way that I engage. And One of the things the Lord taught me through that was that this is a Matthew 25 stewardship um, Mm -hmm. place that, you know, he gives some people two talents and people Mm -hmm. five talents. But the question is, what are you going to do with that? You know, are we going to just bury it? Because we know that in Matthew 25, he 
The master was not pleased with the person who was given a portion and did nothing with it. But if the Lord has given you a portion that allows you to speak out and to do things and to engage, then I say, go for it, multiply it with, you know, for his kingdom, stay in community because community will help keep you accountable. Don't do this in isolation. Um, Mm -hmm. The enemy will eat your lunch. Yeah. 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 Those are really helpful talking points, Christina, and I do feel encouraged. And I know that our listeners will as well. Um, Best place for them to follow you. What do you think? Instagram, Twitter? Yeah. Well, I try not to hang out on Twitter too much. Twitter is what got me in (laughs) trouble. Also, it's just not as nice on Twitter, you know? Yeah. If you are on Twitter, you know, please find me because I am always looking for people who are like me just just here to like learn and hear, but engage civilly and truthfully and kindly. Um, but mostly I hang out on Instagram. If I'm on social yes. media, it's usually Instagram. So yeah. Yes. Well, listeners do give her a follow. Christina, thank you for lending your time and your wisdom and your experience to us. It's been really, really helpful. Mm. Well, thank you for having me, Jen. I appreciate it. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to All Things. Be sure to check those show notes. I will um, link everything that Christina and I have been talking about, and I know you will learn a ton from that. So thank you, everybody, and we will see you again next week. Hey, thanks so much for listening to All Things, where we look at current events and cultural trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now.